From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. The 54th New York Film Festival is right around the corner, and we've just announced our opening night selection. The 13th is a galvanizing documentary by Selma director Ava DuVernay that takes its name from the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in the United States. The film, which will have its world premiere at the festival a week before its release by Netflix, is an unflinching look at the horrors of mass criminalization and the sprawling American prison industry. It's the first time a documentary has ever opened NYFF. The Film Society's deputy director, Eugene Hernandez, caught up with DuVernay in a crowded Los Angeles cafe over the weekend to talk about the project. Let's listen in. What was the light bulb moment for this film? When were you thinking about the ideas that led you to ultimately decide to make this movie? And then what was the light bulb moment to, I have to make this movie? Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Uh, well, my, it's, it's really been progressive and in terms of my thinking about the film. Um, I mean, not in the terms of a film, but in terms of telling the story of this. Um, I can think of instances when I first started filmmaking where I thought um, par- portions of looking at criminal justice should be integrated into narrative. And I started to do that with Middle of Nowhere because these issues about incarceration and its effect on families and communities was really at the forefront. So I started kind of working it out and dealing with it in that film. Um, and, uh, and then Selma, you know, also dealing about the historical impact of the criminal justice system on communities of color, particularly African Americans, and in rewriting that script and kind of interrogating those scenes, you know, at the time of, of Mike Brown's death and Ferguson. A lot of those started to come together in my mind between Selma and Ferguson and the larger incarceration issues that I addressed in Middle of Nowhere. And and so somewhere during the Selma campaign, I started to think, I started to watch more documentaries about these issues just to inform myself and found that there were documentaries on almost all of the the issues that I address in the documentary, my documentary in pieces, but not in one piece. So in order to kind of have an understanding from a documentary storytelling perspective, you had to watch 12 docs to get the full picture, right? And even then there were things that, uh, that were missing in terms of addressing the through line between all of these issues. Through line between, you know, uh, Stanley Nelson's Slavery by Another Name and Don Porter's, you know, uh, film on plea Like, there is a direct correlation between those two things. You know, a book like Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow, and then you have Brian Stevenson writing Just Mercy, and so there were people writing about it, there were people making films about it, but I found myself educating myself in pieces and thought most Americans most people in the world are not going to do this is there a way to create some kind of primer or overview so that was my first intention was let me put all this together but as you start to put it together you start to see like I say through lines connections connective tissue between them that illuminates it even more than looking at it in pieces I think that's um, what the film offers is uh, not just an overview of all of these issues that are problematic um, but a real investigation and a tracing of how we got here. How did we come to be the most incarcerated nation in the world? How did that happen? Literally decade by decade, law by law. How did we come to a place where we fear black men and regard them as criminals? 
How do we get? How, how did that happen? Where did that come from? We actually go back and, and trace the moments where the black men were regarded as, you know, it used to be like Uncle Remus and Uncle Ben and the old uncle. You sit on his lap with the pipe, the old slave uncle and jovial and and dumb and you know like harmless. And then at some point it changed. Archetype. Different archetype, stereotype, you know, for a certain purpose. But it, then it changed to this menace, you know, into this this criminal into this thug and what that did and how it was perpetuated through laws and through you know financial concern and power plays and so we trace that piece by piece to the point where we we can see how we as a nation have been really manipulated into our own beliefs for a larger gain and we, we uncover and unpack all of that so um, so it's just it's, it's interesting to I think what I found as I, I sit and I, as I was working on the film, I had to confront my own ideas about things. Ideas even that this was all done by Republicans, you know? Not true. More Much more complicated. Unpacking that. Who did what? How? How? The central question, how did we get here? So that's, that's what the film um, um, kind of unpacks and my interest in it, like I said, little by little uh, uh, over the past couple of years, but certainly, you know, growing up in Compton, you know, um, seeing a lot of, of things firsthand around criminal justice that was unjust, um, and coupled with my most recent filmmaking inclinations, brought me to this place. Sorry. <laughs> well, okay, my next question is about documentary and the role of documentary. Because as you're talking, I'm hearing a few things. I'm hearing that this documentary, on the one hand, is about curiosity and investigation. I'm hearing it's about... Um, Uncovering, um, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hearing, or I'm, I'm interpreting that it's about advocacy. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing the intended outcome is more than just I want to show something, I want to understand something, but that you want to affect mm -hmm. a change or at, very, at the very least provoke a discussion. Sure. Is that a yeah. fair assessment? No, absolutely. I mean, uh, well, you know, I, I, you know, with Middle of Nowhere, that film was shown as FCC testimony to reverse predatory phone rates um, and, um, and really was a part of that campaign, and so it actually did something. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, even with the film Selma and the work that we did in schools with making sure that, you know, um, over half a million kids saw that film early. This is a formative thing. Like, if you could see something early, it's at a time when it starts to form your ideas about race and history, that um, I thought that that was valuable, and I still feel it's really valuable. And in this, it, it's more than either of those, in my mind, because it deals with um, the film, hopefully gives you emotionally resonant information that directly impacts the way that we all, black, white, or otherwise, operate with each other day to day, you know? Uh, it is a much more personal, kind of immersive uh, storytelling than I feel I've done because it directly confronts what I think my place in this country, um, my family's place, my community's place, and asks everyone to interrogate that. You know, white people, black people, brown people, uh, people from other countries who are confronting what they think we are as black people in this country. 
also, I was showing it to some people who don't live here, and it confronts their notion of what the American justice system is from the outside looking in. It's all kinds of layers in there that I think um, my goal is to, yes, there's the huge thing of it's coming out in an election year, and I want people to interrogate these issues and think about them and demand change and get involved with change. But even more so, um, I'm interested in how it changes our posture. Uh, Toward, toward each other uh, and that sounds kind of flowery but when you watch it I wonder if um, you will look at, when you hear about certain things happening in the criminal justice system if you will regard it differently when you hear certain statistics when you see that black man walking down the street when you hear about that arrest the assumptions that we make um, you know the truths that we think are truths but they were really constructions um, that kind of thing starts to unravel and change who we are and it's just about learning more and allowing that to affect you. So anyway, it works on a couple of levels. Yes, the political action, kind of social action level, I hope that that's there and I, I think it will be. Uh, but more so, you know, I'm interested in uh, learning from people what they've learned from this about themselves. Mm. You know, things that you don't really think are even a preconceived notion. You just think it's a part of the way you think. You know, will that change after you see this and learn a little bit about about where where what you think came from? Yeah. As we sit here, you're still finishing the film, but um, help us help help the listener, help us who are who are who will see it someday soon, understand the approach you're taking. Um, give us give give us give me a sense of of the kinds of people or the kinds of approaches you're taking yes. to help with this inquiry. Yes. Um, the kinds of people you're talking to and the kind of investigative work yes. that you're doing, both you know, historical work to, to kind of yes. make those connections between the past and the present. Yes, okay. Gosh, I haven't talked about this before, so I'm going to do my best. Um, we interview everyone in the film from Angela Davis to Newt Gingrich. Um, we try to keep a very uh, open, comprehensive view of these issues as we go through history. Um, the film is really uh, a triptych, so it's delivered in three parts. The first part addresses the historical context. Um, you start from um, uh, just after slavery and you go all the way up to Clinton and you see the real blueprint and building, you know, it's an examination of the architecture of um, criminal justice system, policing, the laws, uh, the political ramifications, why certain decisions were made in the White House, how it affected people on the ground, um, what's been uncovered about some of the decisions that were uh, not public at one point. Um, and so by the time you get out of the first section, you are really solid on your history about a lot of things. Then it switches into a second gear, which is about um, power and profit. And it goes into the prison industrial complex and how this is uh, much more than anyone can imagine. Um, that prison is not just a place where bad people go. Prison is uh, an industry that makes people a lot of money, some people a lot of money. And so um, it addresses it and breaks everything down as industry, which is pretty fascinating for people who kind of know about it, but maybe you don't know the depths of, of what goes on and how much money is being made and the attempts to, and the effects on real people to make sure that that money never goes away. Uh, and then the third piece is um, the personal, it's the human element and how 
the history and the power has affected real people. And, you know, that includes everything from, uh, you know, hearing from formerly incarcerated people in a way that's not kind of, woe is me, this is my story, but activists around these issues, to a real illustration of why Black Lives Matter exists. And, um, and by the time you get to the Black Lives Matter portion, having heard all you heard before, uh, the hope is that people that are part of the movement feel really emboldened by what they're doing. And people who are maybe sympathetic and supportive of the movement now have a real context for that support and being allies and comrades and accomplices and or not. And that people that don't know anything about it might now have more of an understanding of what it comes from. And however you decide, whatever you come out on, whatever side you come out on, at least you're not talking out of the side of your neck because you don't know what you're talking about. Now you're going to at least have a base of knowledge to think what you think. You can still disagree, but now you'll know. That Okay, so that leads me to the last question. You're finishing the film in a particular moment, and it's been a really intense few weeks, yeah. summer, that's raising a lot of questions and that people on, on all sides are, are heightening to their own advantage, I guess. How has what has been going on over the past few weeks, and now we're in mid-July, um, affected how you're thinking about the film as you're finishing the film? History is unfolding yes. in parallel yes. with yes. your exploration of these issues. Yes, yes. The interesting thing, I think the saddest thing, is that there's been no change to the documentary because this is, is a cons consistent kind of constant struggle. So these new uh, murders caught on tape um, and the resistance, dissent, protest around them has been ongoing. These have caught the public attention, the wider public's attention, um, and um, has sparked more conversation, which is fantastic. Is what we hope the doc does. But you know, the sad part of it is when we went back into the editing room after these and said, "What, what can we do differently?" There, there's, there's no difference. It's, it's the same thing we've been talking about. It's a continuation of it. And when we look at the doc and see that this has gone back, now we're talking centuries. Um, it's a matter of trying to figure out um, how to just get all this in front of people so that when moments like this happen, it resonates in a deeper way than kind of like just a moment. Um, that you're now able to see it in a context, um, in a broader context, and address it more deeply, if you can understand it more deeply. What does it mean to be selected to have this new film that we're all just hearing about now for the first time selected to open the 54th New York Film Festival? Yeah. Well, I'm emotional even answering that question because um, it's nothing I ever expected for this. Uh, I had no expectations for it like this. Um, I, it's something, this, this, the film is an answer to questions that I have. And I was fortunate enough to find a partner in Netflix that allowed me to just go do it. Um, they never called, they never asked, they never, it was only how can we help, how's it going? Um, but so this kind of being out there and trying to piece together this story, the intention was never to have, you know, anything splashy around it. I just wanted it to be a resource out there for folks. And so for, you know, Kent Jones and the selection committee and the supportive film uh, society of Lincoln Center kind of elevating it in this way um it's emotional to me because it's beyond my intention but i think if you have a good intention um and it comes at the right time 
you know, films meet a certain moment. We had that with Selma, you know, it was during the time of Mike Brown's killings in Ferguson. And so anyway, with this, um, you know, the fact that uh, there's been a consideration to kind of break with history in terms of the festival and what has usually been the opening night um, signals to me even more that people from all walks of life, the film industry, institutions that have been long-standing, feel that there's a change in the air. We're in the midst of history. History is happening around us. We will look back at this moment and say we lived during this time. Our children will say, what did you do? What did you do? Why weren't you there? What were you doing? And we will be able to say we did this. We stood for this. And so um, anyway, I'm grateful. I'm excited. Um, I've uh, never been to an opening night of New York Film Festival. <laughs> never could get a ticket. So now I got tickets and I'm really thrilled. <laughs> The 54th New York Film Festival runs September 30th through October 16th and brings the best new cinema from around the world to the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Tickets go on sale to the general public on September 11th. Film Society members at the film buff level or higher receive early access. To become a member, visit filmlink.org membership. VIP passes and subscription packages for the festival are now on sale and offer even earlier access to purchase tickets and secure seats at some of the festival's biggest events, including opening night, centerpiece, and closing night. To find out more, visit filmlink.org NYFF. One of the highlights of the Human Rights Watch Film Festival last month was a conversation following a screening of Chapter and Verse a film about a reformed gang leader who struggles to re-enter society after eight years in prison. Directed by Jamal Joseph, an activist and influential member of the Black Panther Party, the film deals with issues of racism, gang violence, gentrification, and what it means to forge your own destiny in an outwardly harsh society. Following the screening, Joseph joined lead actor Daniel Beatty and producers Cheryl Hill and Jonathan Singer to talk about the film. Let's go now to their conversation. some time for discussion here. I'll start it off with a few questions and, uh, and then leave it open to the audience to, to ask your own questions. Um, and I wanted to start by asking Jamal, uh, and actually Daniel as well, since it turns out you're a co-writer. Um, you know, this film, it's fiction, but it's drawn from reality, clearly. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the ways in which it mirrors personal experiences that you've had or that people you know have had? Um, I'd like to start with Harlem as a character. Um, the building where a lot of the scenes were filmed is uh, on St. Nicholas Avenue and 115th Street. Uh, uh, Joyce, my wife, who's also in the house and, and appears in the film, um, for the first part of their lives raised uh, three children in that building. We still live in Harlem and still keep that place, but, but in that building, on that corner where the kids were doing the pull-ups and just doing that, <clears throat> of nine uh, boys uh, who were born around the same time that our sons, our sons are now, um, our oldest son is, is 32 and our next son is 26, uh, of, the, of, of the boys who were born around that same time, and they are college graduates and, and our oldest son has a graduate degree, of the nine boys, two are dead, three went to prison, and the others went to college. That's that building. 
And so as Daniel and I were talking about doing a film together, and Daniel um, at the time lived right around the corner on 116th Street, and to us that's such an intense and amazing corridor. Uh, because on the block itself are, uh, you know, buildings, new buildings that have gone up where apartments are starting at half a million dollars and going north of a million, and literally around the corner or in the very next block are those projects where we film. So when we walk down the street, we always have that experience as, as black men of seeing, as I said earlier, uh, the two Harlems, and painfully so painfully knowing that every third young man or every third black man that we've passed is, has been in the system or is headed to the system, and knowing them living in the communities and calling these brothers and neighbors, um, fathers, uh, cousins, we wanted to do a portrait of a man that would kind of reflect um, on, on, the, on the larger problem, not only of mass incarceration, but the problems of reentry, and the whole idea that uh, that punishment happens three times in this situation. It's not just that they wind up, it's that uh, we, we have a system that creates a situation where people are impoverished, not getting education, not getting jobs, not getting good health care, and that leads to a cycle of being the victims of, of uh, and targets of, of arrest and mass incarceration. Then they're punished with inordinately high sentences. Uh, Daniel talk about uh, uh, us going into Sing Sing and being heartbroken uh, just a few weeks ago by the amount of time that men have been in prison, not that just they went young. And then what the film focuses on is then we punish them for being punished. They come out having been victims twice, and the third time is saying, we're going to punish you for having been punished, no place to live, no job, no economic opportunity. So Harlem and the people of Harlem became a really tapestry and a character for us as we were deciding how to write the film. I think also with mass incarceration becoming such a hot topic now, um, statistics are important because they show us the magnitude of the problem. So, you know, we hear the statistic of, you know, the 2.2 million Americans that are in prison. Uh, but I know one of the things that we were really interested in is how do we really humanize the people who are behind the statistics? And one of the things that I love about being a storyteller is that stories have the power to cause you to feel um, and think more deeply than you would otherwise. And so I know one of the things that we were going after with this film as well is to really show a dimensional portrait of this man, of this black man, of this man getting out of prison. And what I know from my father being in and out of prison, from my brother who's also been in and out of the system, you know, the work I've done, the work Jamal does, the system is designed for these men to go back in, yeah, right? And, right, and so, so the experiences that we you know, drew from when we were writing this script, trying to get a job, you know, how has your neighborhood, your community changed from the time that you were in prison? You know, who are the loved ones that are no longer there? Or who are the loved ones that have moved on with their lives uh, that you can't connect with anymore? How do you not go back to the same crew that got you in trouble in the first place? You know, and then what are the rules of the streets that you knew before you went in? And a lot of times people perfect and get even better at being inside the system. A lot of the young people I work with who are in juvenile justice system, they say, all prison does is make you a better criminal, right? And so these are a lot of the things that we drew from in making the movie. 
I, can I just, I'm looking at the audience reaction, they're responding to your answer, but they also, you saw a tickle, they go like, damn, he really is a good actor, he's not Lance, look at him. <laughs> <laughs> Told you he went to Yale. <laughs> well, and just to follow up on that, um, it's not just that they're punished for being punished, right? It's, once people come out of the, out of prison, you're incredibly vulnerable, if you're on probation, to abuse. Uh, the sexual harassment that you see on, on, in the film struck me in particular. Um, and of course the scene in the elevator with the, with the kids smoking marijuana and the fear that you have. Um, and I'm sure this is something that you've heard over and over again, but it's not discussed. It, it, it is the disempowerment. Um, I had an experience uh, when I came home uh, from prison. I sold, so, served a total of, <clears throat> of nine and a half years in prison. And my last sentence was my toughest sentence. It was in federal prison. And it was in one of the toughest prisons in the country. Um, it was in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, which is the maximum security prison. And, and um, it was tough with the guards, tough with other prisoners. You know, uh, murders in the prison happen at the rate of about one a month. Um, and, uh, and yet we, we, we uh, you know, I was able to earn two college degrees while I was there, graduated from um, University of Kansas with honors and degrees with psychology and sociology. Uh, formed a theater company while I was there and it started out as, as, a, as a black theater company and then uh, the Latino gang showed up and we thought they were there to kill somebody and they were standing on the side and, Finally, one of the brothers pointed at me and was like, yo, Essie, let me talk to you. I was like, I'm gonna get killed for doing theater in prison. <laughs> and he says, man, that guy, Essie, that guy that you're working with, Essie, we've been standing here, I'm telling you, Holmes, he's not feeling his character. So they got in, <laughs> they got in and showed us how to do it and we formed, uh, uh, we, we formed a theater company. It was the only multicultural group in prison. We had our own section of the yard. But the point that I'm trying to make is having survived that, and having been, as, as I considered myself, uh, not just an incarcerated person, but a political prisoner uh, because of my involvement in the Black Panther Party, when I came out, in order to move up uh, on the housing list uh, to get an apartment where he applied, there was a woman who was compassionate, who knew I came out from prison. Uh, my son, our oldest son, Jamal, was very sick. He had sickle cell anemia. And, she, and I said, we really need a place to stay. And she says, you have to get a letter from a shelter. If you can get a letter from a shelter, I can move you up and I can get you an apartment. So I needed to go live in a shelter. I called up and they said, yes, but you have to be here. And I needed to go live in a homeless shelter in order to find an apartment. The way I was treated in the shelter, what I had to do in terms of when I had to be there, the window was broken, we were freezing. I remember getting in the shower with a stream of water and one of the staff people who was also homeless came and says, get the F out the shower now. And I realized that I had a place to go. We were staying with our in-laws, but if I left, I couldn't have a place to live. So I essentially was in that. So I had to listen, stale food, people, just a lot of stuff happening. And it didn't matter in that moment that I had earned two college degrees, that I was a black belt in karate, that I had formed a theater company. I was a homeless guy trying to get a certificate. And I told my wife, I felt more disempowered and less human in the three days that I had to live in that shelter than in the five and a half years I had just spent in Leavenworth. That is what happens when we come out. And so we wanted to capture part of Lance's struggle for humanity and what men and women who are coming out go through 
uh, as you said. Yeah. Um, I have a question for Cheryl. You've talked about how this film uh, mirrors issues that go beyond uh, the African American community or the Latino community and uh, affect people around the world. Can you talk a little bit yeah, about Yeah, one of the things that I've really um, been reading about and knowing about and hearing about is that, this, and we also were talking to somebody who was from Russia who saw the film and he went crazy and he was like, this is going on in, 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 in the barracks, that's what they call the ghetto, I guess, there. In, in Russia and in El Salvador, this is going on in, in Johannesburg and all around the world. So I'm, I'm particularly talking about with the young men too, the, the gang kids, because a lot of these kids too, they're disenfranchised young men who can't find work or they have issues with education, et cetera. So this is not, this is a human rights issue on many levels and it's not just a local issue, it's happening all around the country, for example and um, it's happening in every major city. We just came from Chicago and to the Human Rights Watch Festival there and the people in Chicago really related to this film as well because we hear about all the shootings and all of that. But these are like, these, this is a portrait of what's happening in our country for lots of reasons. You know, people aren't just turning against each other for just no reason. There's a lot behind it. There's poverty, there's um, all the violence, et cetera. No, I would. I, it's it's interesting. You you know your your friend who wrote the book uh, just recently. Yeah, Kukulan. There's a, a a good friend of Cheryl's who's who who came from a, a neighborhood in uh, in New Hampshire, and it was a a, a project, and uh, it's a story of somebody who was a white person growing up in poverty, growing up in in everything that we have. Here and we and we show in Harlem. I mean, it, it was the same. It was a similar kind of a story. I mean, it, it's not unique to Harlem. It's 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 a problem that exists across the board in, in any poverty area, in any area where uh, where where people are deprived of their rights. And uh, we saw this from the very beginning. We never saw this as a very insular, small story. We saw this as a very universal story, and that was a, a, a big impetus to our going forward with it. So, a question for both of you, uh, Jonathan and Cheryl. I assume that funding this film was a, a tricky endeavor, and, and um, so why, why take the risk to make a film like let, this? Did, uh, let me just and start, so, yeah. uh, you can come back, but you know, it, it was an interesting, pro no, it was an interesting process because we, we needed to find at least one angel who would help us to get started. And Cheryl and I were raising the money all the way through the film. I mean, we were literally every week wondering if we were going to be we able to make payroll. Call it dialing for dollars. Yeah. I mean, we never knew. You know, I mean, it was one of those things where, yes, we made payroll the next week. Yes, okay, great. And it was a big victory, but we still have next week. You know, we got to find somebody else. And, of course, we found some extraordinary people out who were, many of them who were, who were with us tonight. And, and they really helped us and, and believed in us, but we were, we were ambassadors for the movie from the very beginning. We were out there talking about it. So, yeah, and and uh, for those people, I, I just have to say, they believed in what the film had to say oh, yeah. um, and, and knew that independent film is risky, but for all of the people, and that's why I wanted to, to acknowledge them up front, they really believed of the importance of telling this story in this way. So, so I just want to say, I have- Yes, please. Yeah, please. I have spent my, my adult life working um, 
at various companies, Hollywood, I worked for Woody Allen, I worked for all kinds of directors, I worked at Disney, CBS, PBS, and this is my, um, and about two and a half years ago, Jamal and I formed a company called the Harlem Film Company, and these are the kinds of films, or great films, we want to make. And this is my dream job. <laughs> um, and so we're committed to making these kind of films and, and working with producers like Jonathan. Well, Jonathan's a part of the Harlem Film Company too, but uh, John Scheinberg and, and Walter Thurman and, and Peter Jennings and all the executive producers. And Jonathan Fassberg, exactly. And Edith Fassberg and all the kinds of people that believe in these kind of films. We will be looking for them, working with them. But this is like the greatest work you can do beyond any of those other jobs that I ever had. I love what I'm doing. So we have some roving mics and we now have some time for questions from the audience. I would like to go back to the question that the moderator had regarding uh, the sexual harassment. And I wanted to know if the rape scene, because it was indeed a rape scene, he was a vulnerable person still under the jurisdiction of the state who was taken advantage by his boss. Um, was that written as a rape scene or was that written to be funny? And if it was indeed written to be a rape scene, how do you feel about the audience laughing at that scene? Yeah, it, it, it um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, meant to be a rape scene, uh, but it, was, it was definitely goes back to this idea of, of Lance not feeling that he had a choice because she was in a position of power and he wasn't. So it wasn't a rape scene in the sense that he said firmly, no, we can't do this, but she did take a little bit of advantage of his position. We, we wanted to show the side of the fact that was true that he had, been in prison for eight years and, and hadn't made love, so it was complicated. And the relationship between them was complicated. She was not, uh, in our mind, as we discussed it, and as we talk, talked about it with, the, uh, with Selena Slaver, who gave uh, a, a powerful performance and a nuanced performance, when we talked about her character, the fact that she really liked her job, liked those men, was really attracted to him, but what about those boundaries? And would he have been able to push back in a different way if he didn't feel like parole was at risk and other things were at risk? If he's right. unable to push back, does that mean that it's rape? If no. he cannot really consent because he is afraid of losing his job, was that not him being forced to have a sexual act he under duress? No. And is that not rape? And is that something that we should complicate and think about what is rape and it that was a woman because there are lots of women who are actually in those situations if the boss was a man and the uh, ex-felon who is vulnerable economically was a woman would that not have been a rape scene for her probably if it was is if it was reversed this would have felt more like rape i i do want to say that when we discussed the character and Daniel can respond as as the, as as the as the actor that he was that uh, he was it's not that he was not attracted uh, to Yolanda uh, and it's not that if things had been different that they might not have had a relationship but his his option pool was lim was limited so we didn't write it as a rape scene uh, if you're asking if it was a different scenario yes it would have been raped and we we should have talked about it so it was more nuanced to us than that. 
All right. Yeah, and what I would also say is that, I mean, obviously when it comes to a topic of sexual harassment or rape, um, that's something that we always want to explore and consider with lots of layers and lots of sensitivity. So I respect the uh, spirit of the question. Um, Jamal said it, you know, the character was in a very complicated moment. She surely did take advantage, but he also um, was attracted to her in terms of how I was portraying it. Um, yeah, so that's, so that's what I would he say, say in no. response. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't say no. Can I just sort of uh, jump in I just want to say one last yeah. thought too. Um, you know, as uh, a person who's, my majority of my work is from the stage, um, but then now having more experience in film and TV, it's also interesting why people laugh, right? So we definitely didn't intend it to be funny, but people don't always laugh, of course, because they think it's humorous, right? Sometimes they laugh because it's uncomfortable. Sometimes they laugh because they recognize that moment. Sometimes they can imagine where the scenario is going to go, and so the laughter is their mind going forward and back. So I just also wanted to add that to the conversation. Um, not not to toot my horn. Um, I'm friends with. I'm gonna toot it for you. Yeah, and he's an amazing artist and has a song in the movie. Uh, and also his story, his story is one of triumphant reentry. Re he was a gang member, did time, came out, is doing amazing things in his life and, right now. And I, I just. I just, I just wanted to say, um, as far as the scene, just to answer the lady's question, um, as a, as an ex-con, I kind of found the scene to be uh, funny. I was like the one, the main ones laughing. You got asked this whole row. I was like the main ones laughing at it because I looked at it like, you know, if I was in that position, I don't think I'd have second guessed it. That's why I laughed though. <laughs> That's why I laugh, because she's a very, she's attractive. And I'm looking like, man, he just came home. You know what I'm saying? But everybody's gonna take it different. That was how I took it, you know? And to get back to my question, will there be a part two? I would yeah, really we, love for it to be a part two. Yeah, I, I wanna say that we think that there's more to explore. And so with, uh, the next film that we, uh, uh, that, that we hope to be doing is actually uh, it's actually about the Black Panther Party. It's going to be based on my experiences growing up in the Panther Party. But in present day Harlem, so much is going on. We, we're talking about what the next chapter of the storytelling might be, whether it's a part two film or a, some kind of limited TV series. So yes, that's something that we're definitely working on. It's also related to that also is the fact that, you know, uh, when we started showing this film around, we talk, I mean, to, to uh, the people within our circle and people who, uh, who helped us with it, one of the first things that happened was a lot of them were lawyers, as it turned out, because we had a lot of lawyers. And, and they would look at this, and, and the first time they saw the film, and they would say, uh, hey, I, we can get that guy off, no problem, you know, at the end of the story. So, <laughs> so that, I mean, we, we realized that a lot of people had, a, had different viewpoints about how to react to the end of the movie, and we, were, we left it open for that reason, in a way. So that, that was all part of it. I, I, if I can talk about the gang members, though, and gang culture in the film, when we show the film, we get uh, young men who are currently in a gang or been in a gang or who are on the streets. And one of the most gratifying things that we hear is that you got it right. That's my story. I'm feeling that. The other thing that we hope we do is in some way humanize them, their, their camaraderie, their sense of needing to band together. 
their sense of going. We don't see it as a victory that they had to be hurt really bad, perhaps die, and that Lance had to go back to prison, give up his second chance so that Ty can have a first chance. And we also, in the context of living in these communities, when we hear in the news that there's been yet another great gang takedown. Last year there was, you know, what the mayor and, and uh, the commissioner were boasting about in terms of the gang takedown, and yet if you talk to, they said we arrested 100 gang members, uh, and if you talk to people who live in the grant projects uh, who were part of those raids, you would hear about people who got dragged out of their beds that had a cousin that was in a gang that maybe just you know, hung out on the corner, played basketball, that wound up in jail having to fight their way out with the legal aid attorney, with cops coming in, pointing guns at grandmothers and mothers and little kids with bulletproof vests terrorizing families. And boy, did I have a flashback to the rage that used to happen to us when we were teenagers in the Black Panther Party. And the cops were kicking our door. So we hope that that's more nuanced and that even the discussion about what's happening on the other side to everybody that, that's trapped by a system where people feel that there's no choices. This is the only way to be a man. This is the only way to survive. This is the only way to have some kind of justice or peace that we can talk about that picture as well. Yeah, I have two questions. Um, I really enjoyed the movie. I loved it. Um, first, she's right here in the front. She's right here. Oh, okay. um, I was trying to understand when it says chapter and verse, was that a chapter verse of your life? Of, you know, because you knew about the gang and, and, and the, the codes that they use, the numbers. So, because at the end, you went back to, to jail. So was that like the, the whole meaning of the movie chapter and verse? So there's a line um, that the head of the, the young gang says is that used to keep it real chapter and verse, right? That's the, that's the line. And so basically it's like this is the laws of the street, the rules of the street, the, the, you know, the Bible of the street. That's how I always in, interpret the title, right? And so, and that's the, the pool we're swimming in in the film, right? Where the, the world of the street and a real intimate lens into something that, you know, unless you live in it, you don't really know. Okay, and the second question is, when, are when is it gonna show in all the theaters? Hopefully October. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hopefully October. And it'll be in theaters around the country and it'll also be on premium SVOD, so um, everybody will hear about it and we hope you come back and support us or tell 10 of your friends yes. all, and your cousins all over the country. And, and your reaction today on social media really helps us. It's, yes. it's amazing how many people have become aware, and we need this kind of awareness uh, for when the film opens, but also we made the film so that community organizations, people doing the work, universities, that we can screen it and have these kinds of conversations. We, we didn't want it just to be a film where people talked about the acting was great and the cinematography and the writing. These are important human rights issues that we want to discuss across the country. Mm -hmm. um. So I also, I guess I'm trying to use the right word. Yes, I enjoyed the movie, but perhaps even more, I think it's one of the most important movies I've seen in years. Um, my question is more, you know, to the people like myself and others who 
live close to Harlem or in Harlem. Um, there are so many issues there, and there's a lot of it in order to fix is very much, you know, layers, and it's a long process. What, what is your dream sort of for the short duration? What should people take away from it? What can they do now that has an impact on lives, on these children um, and everyone around it? Obviously, in terms of long-term goal, goal, finding the person who believes in them, and but what about now? What about sort of your short-term vision? I, I think we probably all have thoughts about that, but what I would say is that one of the answers or one of the potential solutions is actually modeled in the film, which is through the character Miss Maddie, right? Which is that she sees Lance beyond his time in prison. Um, she treats him like a son. She lets him into her, her heart. She lets him into her family and she provides space for him for not only his future, but the future of those she loves. And you know, there are lots of layers that we have to work on these challenges of systematic race and class and equity in this nation. But when we look at it in that big, big way, it can feel very overwhelming. But for me, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about stories and film and TV in particular, because it reaches masses of people without 100 plus dollar tickets, is that you can feel this character, right? You can say that this is a human being, you know, with a heart, with a history, with pain, with desires, with dreams. And so I think for me, the first step is for us to begin to see those who are different than us as someone close to us or someone like us, right? And because that's the that's the biggest illusion of systematic oppression, that those people are different, or those people yeah. are less than, or those people have something um, that they can take away from me. And so that would be my answer, like how do we truly become more compassionate in who we let into our hearts and our minds? Um, there are organizations that you can Google that are doing great work. Uh, the Osborne Association is doing great work. Uh, there is a, a, a group that was founded at Columbia um, uh, called Beyond the Bars that is doing great work with formerly incarcerated people, incarcerated people, Google them. Uh, their advocacy um, helped organize community, Columbia students and professors and pressured the university so that a few months ago President Bollinger announced that the Board of Trustees at Columbia University has agreed that Columbia will divest its portfolio from any company doing business with prisons. That's a huge difference. So the work can happen on a lot of different levels. The good news is that there's many people, organizations united around this issue. So whether it's just opening your heart and mentoring one-to-one -one, or getting involved with policy or getting involved in working with people with reentry, there's a lot that you can find. Just start with Beyond the Bars at Columbia University. I think there's a question in the back. Um, so there was recently a, a screening at DC TV called Echoes of Incarceration. I don't know if you guys were aware of it. I, yeah, I'm aware. I, I work with some of those young people. Yeah. Um, I'd, it would be great if these could be like bookends for people to see. Um, to, to let people know, um, 
this is really important for a lot of reasons, but I want you to finish your thought, but Echoes of Incarceration looks at the impact of mass incarceration on children primarily, children and families. And uh, we hear the statistic about the 2.2 million people are incarcerated, but we don't hear about the 2.8 million children of incarcerated parents. So that's a whole nother level and issue. And we're actually working and on one a documentary. Of the, yeah, the yeah. next films that we're doing, we're working on a documentary called Behind the Bars about children of incarcerated parents. Um, but I'm still, yeah. yeah. Um, for me, I, um, I worked out on Rikers in, the, in Juvie, and um, for six years, I felt like I did time. Um, it was very difficult because my children were the same age as my students, and there were days where I could just teach my classes, and there were other days where, at lunchtime, I locked myself up in the bathroom and just wept. Mm. These are people's children. If you have never been out there, if you have never looked into the faces of these young people who, when you sat as that character and had that dialogue with your father, I cannot tell you how many times I heard young people talk about that's how they saw themselves. Um, I worked in video <laughs> out at Rikers, the, the darling of DOC, coming out with a camera. Um, and they did video poetry, so to speak. And almost all of them talked about, I ain't shit, I ain't never gonna be shit. My mama told me I ain't shit, my daddy told me I ain't shit. We need a tide that raises all boats. So thank you for having made this film with a different hat on. I was on tender hooks from the moment the cinema room went dark. The pacing in this film is amazing. So if you could just talk a little bit about the edit process, I would be eternally grateful. Uh, it, it, for, for, uh, for us, um, it, it is true what they, what they say about filmmaking. Uh, there's the film you write, uh, there's the film you think you shot, and there's a the film you have in the editing room. <laughs> and all of it is a process and discovery, but the good thing was that we did shoot, we had the luxury to, 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 uh, to shoot a lot so that as we found the story and as we found what we didn't need, it got to a point where it became addition by subtraction. The first cut of this film was actually about two hours and 20 minutes, and we knew that was way too long. And then that's when, as a filmmaker, you have to let go of some things that you thought were precious. And then as you begin to let it go and just remember what the film is about. And this is key, and I tell this to my students. Uh, there's three things. Who is your character really? What is, the, what is the story about? And what is the dramatic action? And we knew that, this, that what happened in the story was that a man comes home from prison and tries to rebuild his life and find his dignity, and there's obstacles. But then we reminded ourselves of what the film was about, and this is present uh, in all of the work that Daniel does. If you've seen his work on stage or his work as an author, as a poet, and I try to leave it present in my work, is what I do in theater and what I do with young people, and that's this. 
we have a system that breaks people. And we know that it comes to, uh, to economics and we know that class and race play a big part. But the bottom line is that we are broken people. And what the film was about and what our work is about is how do broken people love each other. And as a theme, when we explored that, we tried to see if the scene was somehow adding up to tell that story. And at the end of it, what is the answer to it? It's the answer that we know who, uh, we who are artists and activists and activists, you love each other one person at a time, one moment at a time, against all odds, back to wholeness. I'd just like to say thank you for having the guts to do something so socially redeeming as this with all the frivolous, mindless entertainment that the media throws on people, 99%. This was totally socially redeemable. You took a risk and it should pay off greatly for society and the world. It should be shown in every school. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, as we get to the next question too, I, again, I just want to thank uh, John Biaggi and the whole Human Rights Watch staff and family for seeing that and for allowing us to be here. This is a very, very important moment for the film, John. Thank you so much. Okay, again, I just want to echo the sentiments of the you know, audience and just send my congratulations to you guys for a film just well done. Um, the question that I have is that I was thinking about Ty's character and uh, things that he had to do to survive in an environment such as Harlem or Bed-Stuy or just any inner city. And then I thought about uh, Sir Lance's character and how he in many ways provided a safe uh, haven for Ty to allow his feelings to land and to connect with Ty that even his grandmother who loved him dearly was not able to do. But the question that I have is how do you, in real life, how do you allow these young men to, allow, to let their emotions land and, and be vulnerable and empathetic, but still feel safe in an environment that does not support weakness or, or just a certain, that doesn't respect a certain level of vulnerability. Because that's the, the question here. How do you balance that? Yeah, and uh, Mika, hi, how are you? Great. Right. You hit on the, uh, the, one of the, the, uh, the hearts of the issue is that um, Elizabeth, please wait. Uh, is that, hmm? Oh, is that, is that um, Lance didn't have a father, and his father wasn't there, and, and Daniel and I also have that in common. We grew up without fathers. A lot of our work um, has to do with working with young women, but especially a lot of young men of saying, how to, Daniel has a great poem that everybody should, uh, should, 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 uh, should Google and watch called Knock Knock. And it is about a little boy knocking on the glass in prison and can't get to his father and he realized he had to be a father to himself. Um, you have to start with some kind of safe space. But the thing is, is that there are people who have been there. 
There are people who've grown up with, without fathers. There are people who've been to prison. There are the Eddie Jameses who are in the room and another brother that I met coming in that can take these young brothers and say, let's create this safe space. And, and that's why that scene for us uh, in the diner with those two men, both of them who grew up in the street, both of them who did time, with Ty saying, hey man, let's just talk as men. Let's laugh, let's have a meal, just do that. That means so much in terms of that. Um, mentoring, and especially for men who are the elders, who are the OGs, who are the veterans, means everything. And more and more, by the way, you have men who have been there who want to take that responsibility, who want to make that part of their own healing. So it's not just about, I want to get out, get a job, take care of me, find a wife. I want to get out and see what I can do so that I can break this cycle that's happening in our communities from generation to generation. Absolutely. What I would also add to that, um, working in the realm of story, is that we need to start having more dimensional portrayals of everyday black men, right? Because we have to explode this narrative that black men are not fathering their kids and that they're not um, fully dimensional, feeling human beings like you know every other human being, right? So um, the, the, the man who's been a janitor his whole life and has put his kids through college, we need to see that on television and we need to see that in film, you know? Beatty, I just want to first tell you, uh, I love That's you, my man. trainer, y'all. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Excellent trainer. Um, uh, the film was phenomenal, uh, extremely emotional. Um, and for those of you guys who haven't read any of Beatty's work, his books, his poems, unreal. Uh, getting emotional just standing here, but I simply want to say thank you from that stance. Uh, I come from that lifestyle of Thai. Um, it's, it's a beautiful thing to stand here with a graduate degree and as an actor and uh, really come from that stance. Uh, to the artist, I'm gonna be in part two. That's the plan, right guys? Serious, we're developing. I'm having a meeting about that tomorrow with one of uh, my that, producers. I'm, we are gonna yeah, do this. 9 a.m., right? I'll, I'll be there? No. Um, I, I wanted to ask from the stance of, from the creative side, what were some of those meetings like to decide how the film was gonna end? Um, and then even so to the lady who felt so adamantly about the rape scene, what were some of those emotional meetings like to have that pivotal change scene to scene? Um, <laughs> we went back and forth quite a bit about how to end it. And one of the big decisions that we really made, a lot of people wanted us to end it so they went off into the sunset. Like one person we met with said to us, well, wait a minute, there was, that's 17, 10. She counted up the money. I didn't know what she was doing at first. She said they could have taken the money and gotten out of town and, and, you know, and, and he wouldn't have had to hurt them. But that's not real. And we really wanted to try and be as real as possible. Where were they going? First of all, he's a black man on parole and everywhere you go, you got to bring your license with you or whatever. So that was not an option. So we really didn't want to wrap this up in a bow. But we went through a lot of, with this between us mm -hmm. and all of us and some with our executive producers. And we really felt like we had to, to really, it is kind of shocking that it ends in the way that it does. And we're not sure if they're dead yet, but they might be dead. But, <laughs> but that, that was a really important to us to try and really be very real. And we weren't afraid of that. 
and all of us, the four of us, absolutely are we're in agreement with that. Yeah. I, and I have to say, it is a blessing, and 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 this is why you you have to do certain films independently. Um, this would not have turned out this way if it was a studio film. Um, if Daniel and I wrote the script and showed it to a studio because there would have been so many opinions and so many people, we're lucky to have this team. And again, uh, from Jonathan Fassberg to all the other you know, executive producers, to have people that believed in it. But everyone here not only is an accomplished artist, but they're a person of conscience, progressive people who understood why the story needed to be told in a certain way. So that's great. So you don't always agree, but then that becomes good conversation and a good dialectic because you're trying to tell the same story and make the same movie. So it wasn't someone coming and like, what if he had superpowers and just, you know. <laughs> and this happened. We all knew the world that we were in and, and how we wanted to. We envisioned this moment. We envisioned the moment when the film was being shown, we were having these kind of deep, passionate conversations about passionate. this human rights issue. Yes, from the beginning. Right. One of the people also I want to, uh, who's not here tonight, but he's one of our executive producers, and he, he's, he's like a super person that came out of the studios. His name is Sid Scheinberg, and his son, uh, who's also an executive producer, John Scheinberg, is here. He, um, he also loved how we made this movie. So we had a lot of great support behind the decisions we made. But we did, there was a, this, we made the film in what, 28 days? Yeah. 28 days? Yeah. <coughs> the shooting. No, the shooting. Just the, the shooting. shooting. The shooting part the was shooting. 28 days. But yeah. the editing process was much longer <laughs> and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And we have had a great editor, Joel. Um, Joel Davenport. Davenport. Yeah. But um, we went through a lot to make it what it is. And we're so proud and pleased that everyone, um, people seem to really like this movie. Yeah. I, I, I want to talk, as we talk about Joel and Pratt, Joel is a former student. Joel was my student at Columbia. Uh, our cinematographer was a student at Columbia. But what we had, when you came to the streets of Harlem, we truly had a diverse crew. Um, our producing un unit uh, was predominantly women, with the exception of Jonathan <laughs> and Baba Jonathan, Tunde. Jonathan, uh, Jonathan was the only male in my <laughs> in your, in your, your <laughs> And then I, we had a directing unit, an assisting directing unit of black men. And so that meant that your assistant directors, your PAs, were black men in the summertime on the streets of Harlem with walkie-talkies that weren't cops. <laughs> what this meant for the kids that would come out is that they would approach and say what you were doing. And these men, and some of them who had been through the system themselves, would say, making a movie come closer. And this is what I do. It was so empowering. So what you saw in front of the camera was also behind the camera. We wanted to make the film that way. And we didn't have a very, very big budget. You know, our budget is, is uh, a little over a million dollars. But I want to say that in terms of what we did, the people that we hired, we left most of that money in Harlem. We have vendors to this day. Let me bomb and pop stores and places that we yeah. go into this day that thank us and say, when are you going to do the next movie? So, so when we say independent film, in terms of the spirit of not only what's on the screen, but how we made it, we were really able to achieve a lot of what, what, what we believe independent and progressive filmmaking should be. It's true, but you know, I would say one other thing too. Um, when you make a movie, uh, a lot of every, everything, the, the tone of the movie, the way it goes is 
comes right from the top. You have to have a director who really uh, inspires you. And Jamal always inspired everybody who was on the crew every day. He inspired me when I first met him, and it was the reason I got involved with the project. But even beyond that, it was, it was the reason why kids came around and, and Jamal invited them to watch the process, and we all kind of embraced that. Uh, if, it hadn't, if, if he hadn't done it, I don't think it would have been anything like that. So it was very, it was very important to have a leader who was as inspiring and as, uh, you know, uh, as strong as Jamal was all the way through. And it was a revelation to me because, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of directors in my career. I've worked with all kinds of people in both studios and outside of studios. I really believe in independent films because it does give uh, the voice back to us. And, and we had the voice and we, uh, as, as Jamal and Daniel and Cheryl have said, we all, we all were in agreement. I mean, we weren't always in agreement every day about everything, yes, we but ultimately we were always, no, no, but we, we came to a place where we, we came to a consensus. We did the same thing when we took the film out to California and showed it to the Scheinbergs, who were our executive producers, and we let them see it, and they participated in the process, and they made some tremendous uh, suggestions that we sat down and took you know, took very seriously and made some changes that made the movie better. Things that, things that you know, you always need some other eyes on the project, but they have to be eyes that aren't, uh, you know, that have nothing to gain but just making the best movie. I mean, we, you know, we, the, the idea of the gangs, the gang members in the earlier drafts of the movie, you didn't really get the sense of danger that we ultimately seemed to get by the time we finished. We felt it was very important to see that they may be little punks, but they're dangerous. They're people who can kill people. And, and, uh, and that, that was a very important addition uh, to the process and the way we, in the editing process, in fact, and how it came out. I also want to say one thing. It starts with the director, True, but if it wasn't on the page, and these two guys really put it on the page first, it really has to start on the page. I remember someone saying to me a long time ago, oh, it'll be in the performances. Don't worry about it on the page. No, it must be on that page before you start. So, um, so I can take one more yeah. question, and I think I saw one in the back. Do you still? Um, well, I wanted to say, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was very emotional at the end. Um, I was also formerly incarcerated, and uh, I was oh. also a street organizer. I use the word street organizer because there's a, like, a negative connotation with using the word gang. And I'm involved with like, community outreach programs and you know, trying to like, reach out to like, gang members because I understand and I believe that there's a lot of power and I just believe in changing the mindset. You know, I think about like, when gangs started and you know, it was like in the 60s and you know, we gotta realize like, a lot of things that was going on in the 60s. You know, it was civil rights movements, there was a lot of different things going on. And we, don't, we often don't really look at these things. And I just feel like my work, my mission is to just change the mindset of these individuals, educate them, you know, find this identity, because a lot of us is looking for an identity. And you know, it's easy for us to get dragged into the wrong things. My question was that, you know, in my mission and trying to do this work that I'm trying to do in the streets and speak to these street organizers, it's like, what do you think is like a vital something that is very important, or how do you think that I can like, change the minds of some of these individuals so that we can like, you know, come together and like, bring about this change? Um, uh, Daniel said it earlier how important it is uh, 
to give people a sense of positive identity. We grew up with these labels, and somebody else uh, pointed it out to um, the sister that's doing this great work on Rikers Island, how, how our young men and women, uh, but especially our young men, are hearing from the time they're little um, that you're nothing, you ain't shit, you know, all of those things. And so we have to uh, get people to think differently about themselves, empower them, let them know in this very moment the, the potential greatness, all wonderful things are in you at this very moment, and create that safe space. But the other thing, brother, when you're doing this work, and I've, I've done this work, every, anyone who knows me knows that, that I am passionate and working with young people all of the time. Uh, it, it, it may be hard to reach, and then some people know to track me down on Saturdays at my youth program. He'll be there if you couldn't get him anyplace else. I, I, I want to share this story with you because I think it's important. One of my first jobs when I came out of prison was working um, with a program called Changing Scenes where I had young men who were on probation in a theater workshop. And I, I thought, great, you know, I'm, you know, I'm doing theater and I, I did this work. And, and I'd only been out of prison a few months and I was glad and I was working three or four jobs just to make one salary. And I got there and I, you know, I had my little curriculum. We do a writing exercise and then by the end of it, you know, graduation, we do like a 20 minute one act play and it became clear to me within five minutes after I started my first workshop, throw my curriculum out the door. These brothers were so on the edge, they were like the YGs. What they were talking about, what they were doing, what could I do to keep them alive for another week? So I would start by just doing a warm up, whatever came up, that's what the workshop was that day. Sometimes it would be just like a hip hop cipher, it would be poetry, it would be improv, and I'd try to leave them a lesson for survival and I didn't feel like I was getting through. Sometimes I felt frustrated, I kept going back. About two years ago, I was walking down hot summer night in Harlem with my oldest son, and a young man is standing by the bus stop, and he sees me. And he goes, Mr. Joseph, how are you? And I'm going, fine. He says, my name is Stan. He said, you don't remember me. He says, about 20 years ago. He says, I was one of them knucklehead kids in that, in that theater program. And I was like, nah, young brother, you weren't, you know how you try to do it. He was like, no, no, trust me, I was a knucklehead. <laughs> he said, but no matter what, you always gave us something positive every week. He says, and it didn't kick in at the time. I wasn't trying to hear it. He says, but I'm so glad I'm seeing you now because I want you to hear this. About two years later, it kicked in. And I am a husband now, I'm a father now, and I'm a social worker now, thank you. So my sister that's going to work and, and, and has to go in the bathroom sometimes, and I understand that, and cry through that because it is so hard. My brother, I know you're getting frustrated because you're looking and you're like, I could save your life, kid. I could pass this on to you. And I know how frustrating that might be. You may want to hit the wall. I've done all of that. You cannot give up because some of the seeds you plant in the ground and you see grow, and sometimes the wind comes and blows some seeds that you don't know where they go but they will land someplace and it will rain and they will have life as well. We cannot give up on this work. I think that's, there's no better place to end it than that. So thanks everybody and thank, thank you to our wonderful panel. The Close Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. 
Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.